0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd, and my guest today on the program is Howard Fishman, author of the book, To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. Howard, welcome to the program. Hey, Andy, thanks for having me. So Connie Converse recorded her music in the 1950s, but most people, the the vast majority of people who have heard her music now didn't hear it until uh, some 50 years later. How did you first come across Connie Converse's music?
0: I first heard her recordings after they had been released on a 2009 uh, album called How Sad, How Lovely, which is a compilation of many of her 1950s home recordings. And I happened to hear a track at a party and uh, went down the rabbit hole.
1: For me, the first thing that jumped out about her music, I think, was the line where she says sort of a squirrel thing instead of just a squirrel, which seemed like such an inventive and, and, and telling turn of phrase. What was the first thing that made her music seem special to you when you first heard it at that party?
0: Well, as I always say, it, I had the experience very unique and special of feeling that I had heard this song. I'd known this song all my life, but I also knew in that moment that I was hearing it for the first time, and it just uh, it gave me goosebumps.
1: Yeah, I find with her music, I mean, you know, there's sort of a, a, a small uh, cottage industry of rediscovering great undiscovered artists. And sometimes you hear some, somebody and you say, wow, I've, I've never heard anything like this before. Like when I first heard Arthur Russell, I felt that way. But Connie's music is different. It's hard to place. It's it's not an immediately clear to say, oh, right, she sounds like Joni Mitchell or she sounds like Buffy St. Marie or, or whoever. She she doesn't really sound like anybody else. But at the same time, there's a quality of the music that sounds familiar, like something that you've you maybe heard at a at a summer camp in your childhood, even though you you know you didn't, right?
0: For sure, it's it sounds to me like it comes from some alternate universe that we were that were. We've all somehow inhabited in our dreams or in our unconscious because they feel like they're part of us, these songs, uh, and yet nobody has really known them until very recently.
1: Uh, you write in the book that you initially didn't believe that uh, this story was true, that these were home recordings from the 1950s by someone with this uh, somewhat improbable name of Connie Converse. Why did you not believe it? And what finally convinced you that uh, the, the record label uh, was, was not uh, putting on an elaborate bit? Uh,
0: well, a couple of things about that. One is the music sounded way too good for me to believe that it had been ignored for all this time. I just felt like it, if this music was really from the 1950s, everybody would know about it because it's just so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, you know, when I started uh, just Googling around, as any curious person would after hearing the music for the first time, I could find nothing about Connie Converse prior to the 2009 release of these recordings. So no contemporaneous uh, reviews of her shows, no footage of her performing, um, n- no articles about her at the time that she was said to be performing. So I just thought, well, this this seems a little too precious to be real. This is clearly somebody today who's made up this fictional character called Connie Converse, and uh, but is writing these songs and releasing them right now.
1: What is right and what is wrong about calling Connie Converse the first singer songwriter? She's been labeled that before.
0: Uh, Yeah, I haven't called her that. And, um, what's wrong about it is that people have been, uh, have been singing songs that they made up, uh, you know, since humans have been singing songs and making up songs. Mm -hmm. Um, so well before the, the advent of recorded music, um, singer songwriters would have to include uh you know um people like Hank Williams and Robert Johnson and Hoagie Carmichael and the Carter family and uh you know any number of people who were writing songs and singing them from the beginning of recorded music history um I think what people are referring to when they call her an early or the first singer songwriter is that uh when Connie Converse was writing these songs, she was writing in a mode that we now associate with the singer songwriter movement that started with Bob Dylan and company in the early sixties, in which the person writing the song, the person singing the song seems to be the same person who the song is about. So there, there is an I uh, in the, in the song that is the, the person singing somebody who is taking us into their innermost confidence and in revealing things about themselves often in an introspective way. And this is what many people think of when they think of, quote, singer-songwriter music. Do you think Connie, that... Converse was, Connie Converse was doing it a decade or more before Dylan. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Do, do you feel that that is happening in your music? Do you feel that, that there's a, an implied sort of confessional eye that we're meant to believe is Connie speaking to us?
0: I do feel that way. Of course, I, I can't say that for sure. And nobody can because she's no longer here to comment on that. And nobody asked her about those things back then that we're aware of. But I certainly hear that in her music. I hear that it is Connie Converse singing about herself often. And I mean, obviously not in a song like um, the Clover Saloon, where she's talking about uh, being, being a cowhand and uh, killing somebody who is interrupting her while she's trying to have a drink. Um, but in a song like one by one or a song like talking like you, uh, I, I hear converse.
1: mm-hmm but there's never the kind of uh, quotidian details that you would get in someone like Joni Mitchell. You know, I think of like when she says, uh, you know, the last time I saw Richard it was Detroit in '68. You know, like there's nothing that feels like that diaristic in her music. To me, it feels like it, it is engaging in a in, in a folk tradition, like maybe something you'd hear in the Child Ballads or something, where there is an element of of uh, fantasy, of of sort of imaginative play in her music,
0: for sure. And, uh, you know, it's not really a, a point that I want to argue because I, I'm not the one calling her a singer-songwriter. I don't think those labels really serve us in any way. But um, uh, you could certainly, one could certainly compare her to Joni Mitchell and find many things to uh, contrast and also find in common with Joni Mitchell's music if somebody wanted to go down that road, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess I, I asked the question not so much to litigate the genre distinction that that uh, you seem to be, you know, rightfully uh, not that interested in, but sort of to get at the broader question of, you know, when you say her music is is so great, is so special, I certainly agree. I love her music as well. But for somebody who hasn't heard the music, what would you point to as saying you know, not maybe this is what she's doing for the first time, but this is why this music is is great and, and worth listening to and worth uh, writing a 400-page book about.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I would say, or and I do say to people when they ask me that awful question, what kind of music does she play, um, expecting me, I think, with a prompt like that to say something like, singer-songwriter or folk or country or any of these inane labels. Um, uh, What I usually say to people is that she writes very personal music, uh, that it is very often very funny, very literary, uh, that it always includes the listener as a collaborator in the music. I think, for me, the experience of listening to Connie Converse's music is a collaborative one. Uh, There is room in there for me as a listener, to bring something to it. And that's a pretty unique thing uh, that I find in her music. I also think it's incredibly tuneful. These are songs that uh, are earworms. They, they get in our head, and it's hard to get them out. They're incredibly melodic, uh, which is why I think a lot of us have the the, uh, the feeling that we've heard them before. Um, and in, in some of her songs, not in all of them, but in some of their songs, there is an incredible a uh, heartfelt vulnerability and intimacy that I think is very rare, uh, especially for a woman writing in the 1950s. And, uh, and to me, it's a, it's a very uh, special, unique aspect of her music.
1: One aspect of her story we haven't touched on yet is the fact that some 15 years after she recorded these songs, she kind of disappeared and was never heard from again by her family or her friends. And, and we still don't really know what happened to her. When you started researching the book, you thought, you know, maybe she could still be alive somewhere as what an 85 year old or something. At by this point, that seems unlikely. When you started writing the book, how optimistic were you that you would be able to figure out what happened to her?
0: I, that was never the point of this book, and uh, as I say at the end of it, um, what she did with her life, mostly in an invisible way up until now, is the thing that I, I really want people, or I really hope that people will focus on more than the disappearance. The disappearance, obviously, is fascinating, bizarre, uh, sensational, and this is often the thing that people latch onto first when it comes to Connie Converse, because it's such a rare thing for a person to disappear. But uh, she did absolutely vanish in August of 1974 and has never been heard from again. Um, if she is alive today, she will turn 99, uh, uh in a couple of weeks from now. Um, I don't think it's, there's much likelihood that that's the case, but, it was never my intention to go looking for the, for Connie Converse uh, in terms of what happened to her after she left. What I was doing instead was looking for Connie Converse in terms of who she was before that sad and uh, pretty tragic decision.
1: Mm-hmm. And she pretty methodically uh, catalog- cataloged her life work leading up to that point, right? Could you tell us a bit about uh, finding her archives and, and what, what was in there?
0: She did. Um, A couple of years before she disappeared, at a time that I think she was already thinking about disappearing, um, based on letters that she was writing to friends and the kind of language that she used in those letters, uh, in terms of comparing that language to the language that she used in her final goodbye letters. Um, A couple of years before she vanished, she was given the gift of uh, a fully funded sabbatical to London uh, by friends and family who wanted her to have a break from the incredibly stressful work that she had been doing in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as a scholar and as an editor and as a public thinker. Um, When she went to England, or just before she went to England, I should say, um, she cataloged uh, all of her writings diaries, photographs, artwork, um, projects, etc., in a five-drawer filing cabinet, uh, complete with a nine-page table of contents that included uh, what was in each drawer, and within each drawer what was in each folder, and uh, that was what was left behind when she did, in fact, disappear in 1974. She left it in her brother Phil's house, and... When I began work on this book, Phil, who was then still alive, invited me to come out to Michigan and uh, pour through that filing cabinet, which I did. And that material became the basis for a lot of the research that I did for this book. So yes, she was incredibly intentional about leaving behind these uh, leaving behind what she did with her life, which was uh, incredible. And I think uh, something that she knew was incredible even if nobody really saw it during her lifetime. But I think she had the hope that maybe one day people would discover it and understand that she had lived a life of consequence.
1: Did you have a sense going through this material that she'd in some way put it aside for you? (laughs) No. No. Uh, I mean, not for Howard Fishman specifically, but it seems like, you know, if, if you felt like your work, your life's work was worthy of a biography, maybe you would, uh, I don't know, put it in four filing cabinets and leave it with your brother. Like there, there is a sense that she anticipated her her own rediscovery.
0: I think that's very true. Yeah, I think, I, I think that she knew that she lived an important life and did important things and that her hope was that one day it would be recognized even if she wasn't around to uh to appreciate the appreciation
1: i think for me that's what's so fascinating about the disappearance is that she very intentionally disappeared didn't leave a trace didn't tell anyone where she was going and yet she also very intentionally stuck around in in the form of her archive i mean it it It's, it's a a weird combination of a desire to disappear and a desire to persevere.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. And my sense, you know, this is total conjecture uh, and not something that I, I say uh, uh, specifically in the book, but my sense is that she felt that um, she had done enough, uh, that that what she left behind in that filing cabinet represented a life's work. And if she did indeed go on to have another life after she disappeared somewhere else, maybe even as someone else, uh, I think it's quite likely that um, she just got whatever little job she needed in order to get by, uh, but was not going to engage in the kinds of explorations and pioneering Uh, kinds of um, work that she was doing before she disappeared, that uh, she had already done all that. Nobody really cared about it. And her disappearance was a way of saying, well, here's what I did. Maybe one day somebody will appreciate it, but I'm done. I'm done with this work. And here it is.
1: In one of her, I forget whether it's one of her letters to a friend or a relative or something around the time of the disappearance, she talks about being fascinated by humanity but never really being able to slot herself into it and i found that so um not to get too biographical uh intensely relatable but also just Uh so so sad Uh, you find that to be true for you Oh yeah, sure. All the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a playwright and I feel like that's maybe part of being an artist is, is having holding humanity at a little bit of a arm's length and, and, and trying to figure out what are these, what are these people doing? I mean, I think it's probably my confusion about humanity that leads me to try to write, you know, realistic drama. Like if I can, if I can, you know, create a, a believable simulacrum of humanity, maybe that, that's the same as understanding it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so true. And, and it makes me think uh, sadly about the fact that, um, you know, maybe if Converse had had more of an artistic community in Michigan, as opposed to uh, a community minded scholarly community, that maybe she wouldn't have felt so disconnected and wouldn't have felt quite so alone because clearly, you know, in, in terms of her letters and in terms of the the larger scope of history and humanity, she wasn't alone. She was, you, know, you and I are with her, and every artist who's ever thought about these issues are with her, and every artist who came before her was with her. But for whatever reason, in that moment that she was writing those letters, she she felt completely uh, alone. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk a bit about her kind of life story. What was her family background?
0: She came from a a very restrictive uh, Baptist religious New England family uh, whose roots on both sides went all the way back to the 1630s in America. Uh, So two families, the the Converse's and the Eaton's, who were part of the establishment of uh, what became America and uh, all the things that go along with that. So uh, early uh, Puritan kinds of uh, sensibilities uh, that led to her um, religious upbringing and the kinds of moral and ethical, I don't know, strictures that were uh, modeled for her in her home. Um, Any music that wasn't religious or classical was not allowed in her house. Dancing was forbidden. I'm sure that the cursing was forbidden. Um, her father was a, uh, a minister who also became the head of the anti saloon league in New Hampshire and, uh, was in that position all throughout prohibition. And even after prohibition was repealed, uh, her mother played piano in the church and, They were incredibly traditional-minded people. And obviously, Connie Converse was not any of those things and spent her life, I think, fighting against those kinds of sensibilities.
1: It it occurred to me that that word saloon in Anti-Saloon League, I mean, that obviously shows up in the Clover Saloon, but she has other songs that, that mention kind of going out and drinking and, you know, alluding in a slightly uh, uh, evasive way to sexual promiscuity. Do you see her music as in some way a rebellion against her upbringing?
0: Well, certainly some of those songs are uh, have to be that. I mean, in, in her song, Roving Woman, she talks about ladies not being supposed to habituate saloons. Uh, and yet, she says in the song, that is where I find myself in, on many afternoons. Uh, so... Uh, Yes, the fact that she chose that word saloon, both in that song and in the Clover Saloon, um, seems to be a direct rebuke to her father.
1: Do you know much about her relationship with her parents? I mean, did her brother or did any of the archival material tell you about how how their relationship developed as she was a, a child and a teenager and an adult?
0: I really did not find much evidence with regard to her relationship to her father. um, She doesn't really write too much about her father in her letters and diaries. Um, And I don't remember Phil saying too much about their father. Uh, What I, what there is evidence of is a very fraught relationship with her mother, Evelyn, uh, who I think was very disproving of her daughter's choices. Um, Came to think of her as an old maid because she never got married uh, was, I think, generally disappointed in what she saw as a uh, promise unfulfilled because uh, Connie Converse was incredibly high achieving as a child and was valedictorian of her high school class, got her scholarship to Mount Holyoke, her mother's alma mater. And I think that her mother's expectations for her were um, unmet. And mm-hmm. so that was a constant source of stress in Connie Converse's life, and seemed to hover over her psyche, unfortunately.
1: You mentioned that she won a scholarship to Mount Holyoke, but she didn't graduate. Do you know what happened? No. Was it about that time that she began writing songs, or do you think that started later?
0: Uh, No, she didn't start writing songs until some years later. Um, She dropped out of Mount Holyoke after her sophomore year, there's nothing in what was in her filing cabinet when I got to it about that decision. And her brother said that they never discussed it. Uh, after that time of it, which was May, 1942, uh, her whereabouts are completely unknown until nine months later when she pops up in New York city. Um, so what precipitated that decision, what she did after she dropped out before she got to New York, Uh, What led to her decision to go to New York? All of these remain unanswerable questions as far as I know.
1: What were the circumstances of those uh, recording sessions that showed up on the compilation uh, 50 years later?
0: Those recordings came from two sources. They came from her own home recordings, which she made in her apartment in Greenwich Village on Grove Street uh, using a reel-to-reel recorder. Uh, And also there was a collection of recordings made at the home of a guy named Gene Deitch, who had a house in Hastings on Hudson, just north of the city, and would invite people like Connie Converse to his home to perform and then record the performances and dub copies of the tapes for anybody who was interested.
1: And the, the story of how he became acquainted with her is, is a little, uh, convoluted, right? You, it, it seemed like you weren't quite able to get to the bottom of that. It seems like there were differing recollections. Is that, is that true?
0: What he told me is that his best friend discovered Connie Converse. He, he didn't know how and brought Converse to his home with the intention of recording her. Um, the, the friend, a guy named Bill Bernal, uh, had passed long before I started this book, so I could never ask him how he discovered Converse. His widow was still alive. She's now passed. She had no idea. Um, but in the book, I detail the degrees of separation between them and some of Converse's other friends uh, and make a sort of map of how I think that connection happened. Mm-hmm. Um but I think it was basically friends of friends of friends who introduced her.
1: Yeah, and and that in itself tells us something about her music. I think. I mean, you you mentioned talking to people who haven't had hadn't heard these songs in fifty years, but when you mentioned Connie Converse, were able to launch into them and give you you know pretty much word for word like a whole verse. I mean, that 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 really tells you that her music impacted them deeply, and and that at least. A, among a small community, people wanted to share that music with each other.
0: Yeah, that was one of the most incredible finds in my research uh, was locating two different people who had heard Connie Converse in the nineteen fifties. People who were now who were then, when I interviewed them in their eighties, late eighties, I think, uh, who had never heard the. Uh, recent recording, How Sad, How Lovely, or the recent album of those 50s recordings. So had had not heard Connie Converse's music since the 50s. And yet, as you say, could recite entire verses to sing to me over the phone, entire verses (laughs) of her songs, having not heard them in 60 years.
1: Yeah, that's just incredible. I mean, and you you mentioned talking to a psychologist who said, wow, you know, that must really mean that uh, the initial experience was very intense for them of, of hearing that music.
0: Yeah, the, the memory specialists that I related this to said that such experiences are not uncommon, uh, even though it sounds incredible to lay people like you or I, and that the fact that they encoded these songs into their memory to that extent must mean that Connie Converse in person in performance had just an absolutely incredible effect on her listeners.
1: And she really seems, I mean, you get a a little bit of that in the recording that she seems supremely confident. Like she's, you know, even if she, she messes up the guitar part a, a, a little bit, one or two times, she's, she seems very comfortable performing that music.
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with you. I mean, that's conjecture on our part because uh, we don't really know what was going on in her mind as she was Mm -hmm. giving those performances, but to to my ear, and it sounds like to yours as well, she sounds, um, yeah, absolutely as, as pro and, and put together as a performer could be.
1: Did she have ambitions to kind of make it commercially as a musician?
0: She did. Uh, And Uh, We know that because she had a manager for a couple of years, a music manager uh, slash agent uh, in New York in the mid 50s who was not able to do anything with her music. But she was certainly trying to do that. Yeah.
1: Um, And did she live in Greenwich Village the whole time she was in New York? No,
0: she lived in the village from uh, 1950 to 1955. Uh, Before that, she lived on the Upper West Side. And after that, she lived in Harlem and then again on the Upper West
1: Side. And she she leaves New York in 1961, if I have that right, and and that is just so uh, heartbreaking to think. You know, if she just stayed until 1963 or something. Maybe maybe there would have been more of an audience for her music. I mean, you know, singular as it was, there at least would have been a little bit of a scene uh, of of. Call it what you will, singer, songwriter, music. Do you do you uh, find yourself speculating? You know, what would have happened if she just stayed a, a couple more years in New York?
0: Well, you know, the interesting thing about that, Andy, is that when she left New York, she did not then disappear. she, yeah. she was around until nineteen seventy four. So by nineteen seventy four, and certainly for years before that, say by the mid sixties, late sixties. There was a scene in which she could have thrived, uh, not only in New York, but but internationally. I mean that uh, her music at that point could have found a home. So yet another unanswerable question about Connie Converse, once the way had been paved for people like by people like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and, and Leonard Cohen, why didn't she come back? Why didn't mm-hmm. she try again? It's it's unknown.
1: And you even mentioned that she, she lived for, I think most of that time after leaving New York in Ann Arbor, which, you know, she was in a kind of academic milieu, but Ann Arbor is a college town. I'm sure there were coffee shops with folk musicians, you know, in, in 1965 or whatever, but it doesn't worked. seem to be any evidence that she ever kind of ma- made an effort to become part of the local scene in, in, in Ann Arbor.
0: That's right. No evidence of it at all. And furthermore, uh, a lot of evidence that people who knew her in Ann Arbor who I spoke to didn't even know that she had this, this past as a musician in New York city.
1: You also mentioned that she wrote a a kind of song cycle or opera and also wrote some, uh, songs for piano and vocals. Um, how, how did those musical projects kind of expand our sense of her as a, as an artist?
0: Starting at around 1955, uh, Connie Converse's musical ambitions became much more, uh, uh, sophisticated, I guess would, would be one way to say it or, or, um, broader, uh, in which she, she stopped writing the guitar songs that are heard on the album, how sad, how lovely, and turned instead to formal classical song. And she began working on an opera, um, the remains of which have been lost sadly. Uh, but she, what was left behind in her filing cabinet were a collection of manuscript sheet music pages of the song cycle that you mentioned, which is based around the character of Cassandra, uh, and also um, a number of other songs, including settings for uh, poems by um, uh, writers like Dylan Thomas and E.E. E. Cummings. And although she never recorded any of those songs other than one, there's a song called vanity of vanities that she did do a demo of, uh, with herself singing and playing piano. Um, when her brother sent that music to me, uh, I then, um, rounded up the very wonderful soprano Charlotte Mundy and the equally wonderful pianist, Christopher Goddard to make an album of that music so that we could know what that music sounded like. And, uh, that album came out uh, almost 10 years ago now. It's called Connie's Piano Songs. So although we don't have Connie Converse herself singing almost any of that music, we, we do have an idea of what the music sounded like because she left behind transcriptions.
1: And how different is that music, for those of our listeners who haven't heard it, from those, uh, those guitar songs? Do they Is it recognizably the same artist, or, or does it yeah. sound... No.
0: No, it sounds like a completely different composer. It's almost hard to believe uh, that they could possibly be the same writer, except when you think about a song like One by One. Uh, One by One, to me, sounds like it could be an art song. And in fact, it has been taken up as an art song by people like the soprano, Julia Bullock, who recorded it on her uh, album last year uh, on... uh, Uh, entitled walking in the dark, which is a phrase from that song one by one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Julia Bullock puts Connie Converse squarely into the context of classical art song. And I think it's not inappropriate. So if you look at a song by one, like one by one, it does seem to lead to, uh, a song like, um, somewhere I have never traveled, which is a setting for the E.E. Cummings poem or, a song like vanity of vanities.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, did, did she have any success with these musical, uh, compositions? Was, was she, I mean, I think the opera was maybe rehearsed if not performed. Uh, what, what happened with this, with this music?
0: Um, It was rehearsed. There is a uh, tape that uh, I hope one day will see the light of day in in terms of being released commercially. Um, It's not easy to listen to because it is essentially a small, a handful of amateur, what sound like amateur uh, singers, getting together to sight read through four or five songs from the opera. Um, But, uh, yeah, it, it, it was rehearsed. The opera was making the rounds to um, people in New York City who seemed to be excited about it, and then, poof, uh, it it disappeared just like she eventually would.
1: Yeah, which it, you know we should say is not an entirely uncommon experience for an artist that you have a project, people seem excited about it, uh, cut to five years later, and nothing's happened. Right? I mean, that's that's not the that's strangest part of her story. That's true.
0: Yeah. Um, it's just, it's so unfortunate that that opera, especially, or whatever, however far she got with it, uh, has been lost, because Mm -hmm. uh, a Connie Converse opera, can you just imagine? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's just, it's tantalizing to think about what that might have been like.
1: And and it's odd that I mean, she was so meticulous about keeping track of her work that it's it's odd that it's not in the filing cabinet. Do you have any idea why that might be? I mean, was she just so unhappy with it that she destroyed it? Or is there any evidence about, about what happened to it?
0: I mean, it, it could be among the things that Phil Converse threw out. Um, mm-hmm. After he retired in the early 90s, Phil Converse took it upon himself to go through the filing cabinet and weed out things that for whatever reason he didn't think needed to be saved. And uh, that might've been one of those things. And who knows? I mean, he might've been trying to protect his sister because he felt that, you know, the opera wasn't up to snuff in terms of her artistic standards or who knows? I mean, it's, that's all just speculation and yeah. probably, probably best avoided.
1: This must've been a, a frustrating for you to have a combination of so much archival material. I mean, you know, you have all these filing cabinets that have uh, much more material than probably you expected, and yet there are still these huge gaps in her story. Is is that combination of kind of an overabundance of some material and, and uh, a scarcity of other material part of why you decided to write the book in the way you did, where you really foreground your own research and you almost mm-hmm. become a character in the book?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, I didn't really see any other way of writing the book. That's the that's the way, that's why the book is written the way that it is. Because had I tried to write a cradle to grave standard biography in third person, there would have just been too many holes. Mm -hmm. And so I had to include the reader on the sort of detective story chase, uh, to learn what I could about Connie Converse, uh, uh, from what was left behind and then also share, the frustrations and the dead ends that I hit.
1: And kind of also you, you kind of talk through, well, this might've happened or this might've happened. And if this happened, then that means this, like you, you really bring the reader along your process of kind of trying to speculate about, about what she was up to and her intentions at different
0: points. I, I do. And I try to do that in a way in which I'm never making any assumptions whatsoever, Uh, Mm -hmm. But what I do do or try to do is include the reader in my thinking as I, uh, you know, if I hit a dead end, you know, other than just saying I hit a dead end, I say, well, we don't know what happened here, but here are some possibilities based on the evidence that we do have. Um, And none of this is, uh, is provable, but here's where my mind went. And hopefully, like Connie Converse's songs that include the listener, that sort of thinking and reporting includes the reader. And I hope that the reader um, appreciates that and uh, maybe even likes that, as opposed to being angry with with me for sharing my thoughts.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a a productive question or not, but if there were, is there maybe? one piece of information or one document or, or one part of the story that you wish you had that you don't have?
0: Uh, I mean, other than what happened to her.
1: um, (laughs) Yeah. Other than that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would really like to know uh, so many things. Um, Mm -hmm. But I guess the, the, the couple that, that are most prominent to me are, Why did she leave Mount Holyoke when she did? What did she do during those nine months before coming to New York? And then why did she leave New York when she did? And why didn't she go back when it seemed that the climate was ready for Connie Converse, the musician? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: After she left New York, I think it's about a dozen years before her disappearance, and uh, she became involved with uh, a journal called the Journal of Conflict Resolution. Could you tell us a bit about that journal and what her role with it was?
0: Sure. Uh, the Journal for Conflict Resolution was the journal for the Center for Research on Conflict Resolution, which had been established in Ann Arbor in the 1950s and was a visionary um Uh, sort of project involved with trying to further the idea of world peace and trying to solve the world's conflicts and trying to solve the the notion of human conflict itself, which is a pretty heady thing to try to do. And the, you know, the journal is still around and um, highly respected Connie Converse started working at the center in 1963, I believe. And, um, ascended to the role of managing editor of its journal within a year, which is pretty extraordinary given the fact that she'd been there for such a short amount of time and that she didn't even have an undergraduate degree. And here she was manning the, you know, the leading journal in the world for a conflict resolution. So uh, she did that from 1964 until I believe 1970, at which time she resigned her post became co-managing editor and then um, took a leave of absence in 72 to go to England. At which point uh, when she came back, the journal and the center, the center had been closed down by the university of Michigan. Um, The journal had been suspended and when it popped up again, uh, it was without converse um, after it had been moved uh, to Yale.
1: Hmm. And uh, what was I mean you, you mentioned that she was the managing editor. Uh, what was kind of the nature of her work that she did in that capacity? I mean, was she reviewing submissions? was she writing for the for the journal? Uh, what exactly was her kind of day-to-day work?
0: I think she did everything from the very important job of reviewing submissions and giving editorial feedback and helping select what was in those issues to the very, also important but very menial job of licking stamps and stuffing envelopes, Mm -hmm. um, basically everything involved with the running of that journal. Um, The only time she wrote for publication was in 1968. She published an overview of everything that the journal had published up to that point, which was a mammoth undertaking, uh, a very, very long essay that is available online. You can Google it. It's called The War of All Against All. And in it, she tries to synthesize everything that had been written about conflict resolution in that journal during its first 10 years, which is just an unbelievable uh, task that she set for herself. And I think something that eventually led to the nervous breakdown she had in 1970.
1: I mean, that's just such a a Herculean task, uh, especially for somebody who's not really used to writing or academic writing to try to to put together 10 years of research into some kind of a synthesis. I mean, that is, you mentioned that it's ambitious, but that's, that's really something else.
0: It's mind boggling. It it really is mind boggling. Um, Yeah. It's just, it's hard to, it's hard to even get my brain around uh, the work that would have to go into something like that. And yet she did it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that really gives you the sense that this was not just a job for her, but was was like a a, kind of a consuming passion.
0: For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the specialization of that, uh, of the writing that was going on in that journal. I mean, it'd be kind of like if if somebody today were to say, "Okay, um, here's here's a summary of everything that has been written about AI over the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. anywhere, anywhere in the world. Here's, here's a summary of it, you know, in, in a hundred pages. That's what she was doing.
1: Yeah. And she also had some involvement with political activism as well. Could you describe that work and how, or if it related to her work with the journal?
0: Yeah, she was a pretty ferocious activist, um, not only in terms of uh, advocating for peace, but also uh, advocating against police brutality uh, and advocating against racism in America. And one of the things that I include in the book in the appendix is uh, what is essentially like a proto-Black Lives Matter treatise on the problem of institutional racism in America and ways that we might be able to approach it and help solve it uh, way 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 ahead of its time and um, yeah th- these were she after she stopped making music she became dedicated to being part of the solution in terms of the the big issues that were facing the country and the world uh, at that time and that's how she uh, spent almost all of her time
1: Yeah, which I mean maybe that's Obviously, there's the temptation to speculate is so great with all of this material, but maybe that's part of the explanation. Is just, you know, being an activist and having a demanding full time job didn't leave a lot of time or mental energy uh, for for making music. Maybe it's it's not as uh, as dichotomous as you know she abandoned one thing uh, to do another. Maybe she just you know found herself tired after a long day at work, like many of us. Sure. Yeah, Is there any indication in those 60s years of kind of how she thought about the music that she'd spent so much of the 50s uh, making? No,
0: no. Um, if she reflected on that music uh, either in letters or diaries um, they're, they don't exist or I haven't found them yet. I mean, who knows? Maybe somebody will uh, contact me and say, hey, Connie Converse wrote me a letter in 1967 talking mm-hmm. all about her, her songs and what they meant to her in New York. I, it's possible that could happen, but nothing yet, nothing like that.
1: Yeah. So you helped put together this album of her piano songs. You wrote a play about her life that I think included some of the songs as well. You've performed her songs as a musician. You've now written this book about her. Do you feel that your engagement with Connie Converse a, on an artistic and, and scholarly level is done? Is this the kind of the the capstone project for you? Or do you feel like this is uh, going to be a continuing part of your life uh, going forward?
0: Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Thanks for asking. it. What I will say is that my goal in all of these endeavors has been to gain more recognition for this woman's remarkable life and work. And I would say that that goal has been achieved to some extent, maybe not to extraordinary extent. I I, extraordinary extent would be Connie Converse becomes a household name. I would Mm -hmm. love for that to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, But I do feel a sense of responsibility with regard to being open to doing more work. Should there be call for it? So Should more evidence come to light about details from her life? Should there be a need to update my book with a new edition that would include some of those details? Uh, Should people want me to come and talk about Connie Converse at a school or at a library or uh, anywhere where I feel that I can be of service, of continuing service to her legacy? I'll certainly do that.
1: Great. I mean, I'm Other doing than, it now, talking to right. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any podcasts that might want to have you on? Yeah, uh, I'll yeah. talk about her until I'm blue in the face. <laughs> Other than your work with uh, Connie Converse, what else is has been occupying your uh, your time and, and what might be the next uh, project that might see the light of day?
0: Well, I don't want to jinx anything in terms of talking about future projects. I do have several things in the works. Um, but I would say that by and large, I am... Trying to, um, uh, you know, promote the book as best that I can to advocate for it on the on the um, uh, uh, on her behalf, um, and I am trying to continue to do the thing that I took away from in terms of thinking about and writing about Connie Converse, which is just try to have connections with people um, mm-hmm. and try to make make those kinds of meaningful. Moments happen on a day-to-day basis because I think that's what she lacked in her life, mm-hmm. and I think it's you know more than books or podcasts or you know anything else we might engage in. As you know, we we're trying to live a, a meaningful existence, and we uh, I shouldn't say we. I feel that I need to be able to make um, my connections with with other human beings. And the, the the shared relationships and the shared shared kinds of experiences we can have, uh, part, of, part a big part of
1: that. Has that been kind of a realization in your own life that has come out of your engagement with Connie Converse, trying to be more intentional about connections with other people in that way?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I what I don't say in the book is that um, when Connie Converse at, at the point bef- just before I started working on this book, I was in a pretty desperate place myself. I sort of allude to it in the very first pages of the book. Um, but I was having a really hard time understanding what I was supposed to do here on earth. And, um, I was having a hard time being connected to other people and to myself. And I was kind of in a dark place. And and then I went to a, a party and I heard Connie Converse's music for the first time. And, uh, I think that the journey that started then that has led to now and is ongoing is just about understanding that it's not about cash and prizes. Um, not that that's what it was about for me back then, but, uh, that way more important than say, uh, prestige or money or property or, uh, um, fame is uh, having some kind of experience in this realm that we're a part of um, that uh, gets past the the awfulness um, that we all experience you know from time to time and even from day to day uh, and the only way I, I really feel like that can be done is through connections to, to our to other people
1: yeah. Well, Howard Fishman, it's certainly been a pleasure talking with you about this uh, remarkable book. I know you've been kind of uh, uh, very modest about it in terms of uh, wanting just to increased visibility for Connie Converse. But I also really enjoyed the book. And I think it's a very interesting kind of hybrid form where you're weaving your own investigation with what you find in the course of that investigation. So, you know, I think people who are interested in kind of uh, experimental forms in biography, creative nonfiction, etc., will find a lot uh, to enjoy in this book, regardless of whether they are already Connie Converse fans. So uh, thank you so much for this book. And thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about it.
0: Very kind of you to say those things, Andy, and also to invite me to appear on your podcast. I, I had a great time talking to you.